Hi. Hi. Welcome to Still Listening, a monthly podcast that engages artists in a conversation about their work. Woo! Though we like the podcast to be more timeless than topical, ignoring what's happened over the past month would be like ignoring a fart in a car. It's unpleasant, embarrassing for the perpetrator, but most of all, it stinks. With media all over the world screaming at the top of its lungs, we here at Still Listening decided to take a slightly more contemplative approach. We want to talk about why this might have happened. So this month we're asking... What makes English heritage so worth holding on to, and some people so distrustful of anything that might cause it to slip away? True to form, we did some on-the-ground research ourselves, and then passed the buck to you. The writers, the thinkers, the scientists, the social butterflies all around us. This month we talked to poet Humphrey Astley about how the idea of heritage feeds into the way that he writes, all in the context of his new pamphlet, the Gallows Humoured Melody. I talked to Huck about his two poems, Country and Movement, the influence of other cultures on his work, and whether hand-me-down heritage has any place in the modern world. But first, wonderful listeners, would you be kind enough to take a walk with us? Here we are on approach to Blenheim Palace. There is a very, very long driveway, fringed by trees on either side, very orderly, very pruned. It's quite majestic, really. The sun's come out for us. We're really excited to get inside. We'd say we'd head in right away, but this is a very long driveway. We feel like we're like a couple attending a royal party. As soon as you walk in the door, you immediately feel out of place. Yeah. I mean, the carpet that they've rolled out for us is invisible, (laughs) but there's still that kind of sense of purpose and majesty. What we didn't realise before was that it is the birthplace of Sir Winston Churchill. If you take a tour around the palace, you'll come to the bedroom he was born in. There's a lock of his hair framed above the bed. Indeed, which is as unsettling as it sounds. The palace is obviously magnificent. It's extravagant in every way. Blush materials, amazing paintings, amazing architecture. Library bigger than most people's schools. It's hard to forget, of course, while you're there, that somebody still lives there. Yes, and that is the 12th Duke of Marlborough. And his family. We didn't see him, though. We did not. We did not, though. We did keep our eyes peeled. Uh, we did, however, get to stroll through the dining hall where his family has the Christmas dinner. These large vaulted ceilings, painted walls, unbelievable decor, and uh, a general sense on our parts of uh, <laughs> feeling very out of place. Out of the palace and into the grounds. We walked along the river, we walked through some gardens, and we came upon a waterfall. We're standing at the Cascades in the gardens of Blenheim Palace, right next to the pump house. This is the water that they use in the palace, actually. So the river that's running through it, they pump into the house and they use that for this. You probably don't want to know what they use that for. There's a few ducks that are trying to swim against the current. It's absolutely beautiful surroundings here. Just a very quaint, elegant bridge over the Cascades. And yeah, we just nipped into a rose garden and... Had a little stroll, a little English stroll. For those of you unenticed by the grounds, the idea of Winston Churchill's hair in a box, or any of the other things that previously mentioned, you can, of course, enroll in the Royal Butler's Academy, a month-long course that will train you to be the best possible help to someone else that you can. Over the years, however, the palace has hosted much more than just summer parties. During the First World War, it acted as a hospital for wounded soldiers, and during the Second World War, as a safe house for over 400 evacuees. The palace was known as a safe zone during bombing runs, if only because Hitler wanted Blenheim to become his own personal estate when Germany won. 
Winston Churchill said of his former home, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. We liked what this had to say about the nature of heritage, the almost circular shape of culture. But Blenheim is just one aspect of UK culture. That's why we came to you directly and asked, what does heritage mean to you? I'm a very proud Brit. I can't help it, and I'm not afraid to say it, although I have had a bit of a wobble, what with the recent events. Because I've come from a setting where a lot of stuff gets passed down through the family, farmhouses, farm culture, and like people don't really go outside of that area either. If you're a farmer's son, you'd then be a farmer. Just thinking about it properly, you know you're British, but you never, I don't really associate myself with that, other than saying sporting events. I don't, when I'm just walking around, I don't have a sense of British. Again, it's where you're born, where you've grown up, when you know. I think people are very international now. And obviously, I think roots are different from community in a way. I think the idea of being cosmopolitan goes hand in hand with a, an idea of being global. Even if you have that strong sense, the way that you have to conduct yourself is on a global scale, and so it becomes irrelevant. I'm not one of those guys of being English as being English through and through. I'm happy to diversify cultures kind of thing. People saying that we need to go back to Great Britain, but that's just kind of going back to a piece of history. Everyone has to sit together, but yeah. I think heritage in kind of country people's mm. idea is stronger than someone from a city just because they've got more to hold on to. Which other playwright's work has been performed in every single country on this planet but Shakespeare? I'm proud of our rich history in science and technology. I'm happy to be English, but I don't think, I'm not necessarily proud to be English. I don't, I'm not a royalist or anything, I don't yeah. think. I don't get that sense of pride. This is the birthplace of the internet, the site of the discovery of the structure of DNA and the place where gravity was first recognised as a force. British sense of humour, just the dryness of it. I like that coming from Britain. I think that's something that's hard to replicate. That's something you have to be proud about. I think the British spirit is one of endeavour, ingenuity and spontaneity. We are a funny bunch who can laugh at ourselves, but conversely may also at times take ourselves a little too seriously. You kind of stick with what you know, and what you know is what you enjoy, and what you enjoy is what you respect, and that's your heritage. If you look at a city, you kind of doubt your own heritage because you've got all these other influences. So your heritage kind of is constant. But then you kind of think, who who decides what is heritage? Who decides what we should remember? Heritage is... Heritage is what we carry with us. I mean, I think my dad would have been sad, not disappointed, but sad if no one was going to carry on just because this farm has come through the generations. Every generation is different in what they think is the best way to live your life. And so yeah. heritage is more of a... It's like a ladder that you kind of see it. On the family side, it's your family history and how you were brought up. And the countryside, I think the Scots are particularly got a very strong heritage and they're very close to their heritage, to their history and very proud of it. So heritage to me means both family and country. And it kind of builds the foundations of where you're from and it kind of gives you the basis of where you can go from that. The idea of it is pushed on you more when you've got something that's worth handing down because yeah. you have to remember it. Without it then people do feel lost and they feel disconnected to their background and mm. where they're going next. I don't think you make heritage. No one's conscious of the history that they're making. You, yeah. you just do that. And then they take aspects of it that they like, forget aspects that they probably don't like, mm -hmm. and then build on that. These are all pieces of our British heritage and they belong to each and every one of us. But from a myriad of voices emerges Humphrey Astley, a poet from Oxford and a talented musician to boot, also known as Huck, Huck's most recent work is a upcoming poetry pamphlet being published by Rain over Booville, and the work is entitled The Gallows Humored Melody.
Today he's sharing two poems with us, both having to do in their way with heritage. The first is country, and the second, which will appear in the middle of the interview, is movement. So without further ado, here is Humphrey Astley with country. Country. I don't need to change my strings. The dirt don't hurt the way I sing. Sturgill Simpson. To love you without having you is country's brand, it's cautery. A man can set his secrets to the gallows humoured melody. You're different from the other girls that work the bar. I haven't changed my set in days. Each smoky pearl of wisdom's calling from the stage. A cowboy from the ball fell for an Indian who with a kiss turned him into a totem pole. You take a break and squander it. The window frames your face, the moon, the cherry on your cigarette. I join you, but I'm set in stone. The gallows humoured melody will keep me company. The view has set me up quite comfortably to have. You bring a lot of Americana to your work, which is really interesting. What is the draw to you about American folklore? I've always listened to sort of Americana derived music. Growing up, I suppose the main influence, the the artist that kind of really got under my skin with that kind of folklore, as you say, would probably be Nick Cave, who I've been listening to, you know, pretty devotedly for a good 20 years or so. Interestingly, you know, he's not American either, so maybe there's something to be said about that. Like he is approaching that material as an outsider, as an Australian. Mm. Um, he grew up obsessing over Johnny Cash and, and people like that. I mean, there's other stuff to go into there, like Auden, famous Oxford poet, of course. He wrote an essay on Americana, as, as he called it, American literature. And he made a point that I kind of agree with, but. I imagine a lot of people would find controversial, if not kind of outright <laughs> offensive. He basically said the thing about English literature or English poetry, as opposed to American poetry, is that it is necessarily provincial by comparison, because you know England has this whole history of hierarchy and hegemony right, right. and cultural tradition. And then there's just the geography of the place, like it's just so small and so, you know, perhaps inevitably insular. But then you look over the Atlantic to this massive continent. Um, and again, it just seems like anything is possible. And there's the whole, like, you know, the frontier spirit and everything of constantly trying to progress and innovate, or at least there was. You pinned it earlier and I hadn't really found the words for it, but I think romanticism versus like fetishization of national identity or even heritage. Like there's this, mm. you know, you're seeing like Trump has the rhetoric of make America great again. 
And you know, now the UK has decided to do a very insular, sort of closed-minded thing to return to nobody knows quite what, but the sense of Britain as Britain for Britain. Not to oversimplify, but like if just to get your perspective in one line, like what would you say? What does it mean to be British? God, I don't know. Um, I have been thinking about this quite a lot and asking myself how I would respond to a question like that and how I would speak to people from other nations if they were to ask what does... Well, basically what it all comes down to, if you, if you ask yourself what does it mean to be British, or in my case, nominally English, um, I guess the follow-up question is, well, what am I proud of that is fundamentally English and I would say well the only thing I feel I can be proud of like unequivocally that is English is the arts our literature you know because yeah. people are like well you know we should be proud of the Queen and it's like yeah she's all right like <laughs> I've got nothing against her personally but then if, if we if you go into it it's like well yeah but then monarchy that's a seriously problematic structure but then a figure like Shakespeare, obvious and cliche as it is, you know, I really feel you can be unequivocally proud of the fact that, you know, most people on the planet will have heard of that guy yeah, yeah. and they'll know that he was an English guy and he has enriched, you know, an English artist who has enriched world culture immeasurably yeah. and enriched the English language. Maybe language is a key to understanding what it means to be British because... English is supposedly the world language. Right. Though it's going to be interesting to see how that changes over the coming decades or century if Britain slash England doesn't play its cards right. We're, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw this century English receding as the global language. But then I'm someone who is quite sort of analytical and overthinks things and wants to like deconstruct things. So if somebody says to me, what does it mean to be proud of being British or, or what are you proud of as a British person? Then my inclination might be to ask them, well, what does it mean to be proud in the first place? What And what use is pride? Should we not be evolving past that? Pride has done a lot of damage yeah. throughout all history. Movement. My grandmother standing on a West Island pier, trying not wanting to take it all in. The Atlantic, both the linctus and the tall dark man, pushing it on her. My grandmother feeling as young as she is, with the odor of rope and the spit of birds, ripe to distill in the pits of these kids' hopes and memories. My grandmother watching her formal ma totter against the sky empty of cables and satellites, blackened by ships like the one that now steals most of her daughters. My grandmother hearing them call, their voices brushing her own, watching her sisters grow small. My grandmother putting a ring on her finger, trying to rein the new movement of the world, 
the two of them taking their three young girls safely to England. Would you be willing to kind of talk about the background of it for a moment? Yeah, it came about, as opposed to country, which is one of the oldest pieces in the pamphlet that's coming out. Movement is one of the most recently written, or at least recently compiled. Uh, it's one of the freshest pieces, and it came about with no real planning or forethought. It was partly motivated by the film Brooklyn, which came out yeah. maybe last year or early this year. And But, you know, it stuck with me because I could relate to, like, the character played by Saoirse Ronan was of a generation that my own grandmother belonged to, and she was in that position of seeing siblings just kind of disappearing across an ocean, an ocean that was a hell of a lot bigger three quarters of a century ago. And I couldn't get the image out of my head and decided that I needed to write a poem about it. Well, generationally, to be honest, it's interesting. One of the things that's really nice about this poem is I think you've connected with something that really epitomizes, I think, the divide between generations now. And so yeah, we are sort of globally minded. We are culturally independent. We recognize where we come from, but it doesn't matter because there's almost a a line, a very strong line that's been ground in us that says, you know, what we're all people and we're all from mm -hmm. chance, wherever we're from, and you can get anywhere in a day now. And it's yeah, big deal. Exactly. As opposed to, you know, you can see, I think generationally, where people still really care about where they're from. They care that they were born here. They care for reasons that go beyond, you know, the, the rationale of, of the present moment, I think. You know, it, mm -hmm. is, it is much more of a sensation, I think. And that's what I think people are responding to. And I think you capture, you know, really interesting, like, you know, my, my grandmother watching her formal ma totter against the sky empty of cables and satellites. You know, mm -hmm. the unknown, everything is so much bigger, you know, and so much emptier in a way. Yeah. And there's these vast expanses of of not knowing and, and what you do know is where you're from and what you've grown up in and the kind of familiarity that is there being to some degree the only constant the only things that you can rely on is that you know England is England and or you know Ireland is Ireland and yeah you know, that's not gonna go anywhere you know yeah. that's that's not gonna gonna change you could present me with you know any random stranger from the US right now and as long as he's into Game of Thrones, yeah. he could probably talk for hours because it, it crosses the divide. Yeah. You know, so long as language doesn't become a barrier, that must be true across the world now. And how, mm. you know, before it would have been such a surprise, you know, that someone had read Austin or, you know, Shakespeare, you know, and, you know, in that way, you know, 100 years ago, that would have been... Like, you mm. would have been really, I think, chuffed to be like, yeah, let's talk about it and let's, you know, get into it. Because um, I think that those those barriers would have felt so much more restrictive, um, but it really it almost it increasingly feels like placeholders, you know, for identity. Like you know, oh, I'm American, or oh, I'm whatever. But what does that? It doesn't mean anything like it used to. Mm. And it becomes much less. But again, to not to to take it back to the poem straight off. But I do think you capture a time when it does matter. 
and like I think that that's really I think it's just really good I think it's really easy particularly for younger generations to forget aspects but you know I think it's really easy to empathize with your grandmother here and to imagine how scary that would be and, and imagine what kind of values she does or would have now I'm glad that it feels like empathetic I'm a believer in this idea that you know that the old maxim you should write what you know and that you, you should write what is what is close to you and write it doesn't have to be about what you think about the situation so I knew when I embarked on this poem that all I would be doing is just trying to watch what was going on in the mind's eye which is an incredibly pretentious thing to say I think quite human really like it's just a very humane idea like, I don't think you've politicized this you know again it's a really easy thing to do right now I think to make it really political but I think you've just tried to connect it's like you know this is a crazy situation you know that yeah. you may never see these people again and I can't imagine what that would mean how you would process that kind of information. Thinking about the sea, I mean, I hope that people don't kind of roll their eyes or yawn when they see that, oh great, it's another ocean poem. But I think what's interesting now is that the talking about what has changed in the meantime, mm. about how different things are and how small the world is and how much farther our reach goes as a species like the ocean has been one you know a classic trope in art for as long as art has been around probably you know for obvious reasons because it's massive you know it can cut down any attempts to take it on yeah. and it will do so mercilessly but now we have an interesting situation where even that perhaps is under threat because we as a species seeming to be quite successfully poisoning the, the oceans of, yeah. of the earth, uh, or at least, you know, upsetting the biodiversity of it, which is mm. going to massively affect things. Yeah. And then also with global warming, of course, that's going to change how the ocean behaves. So, you know, in fact, the sea is not this kind of immovable, eternal thing. There was a time when it really was, and it couldn't have been. It, there's, there has to be a compromise somewhere between how much of each element do we want to keep, like, because we want to have stuff that is eternal and constant, stuff that we feel that we can fall back on and is immovable, so that it will be there every time when we do need to fall back on it. Yeah. But at the same time, we want to be able to expand as much as we can and do as much as we would like to do but maybe we can't have both maybe, maybe that's the same with like heritage you know at some point do we have to acknowledge a time has passed or a cultural identity has passed and not that it's dead or even necessarily totally gone but that it is no longer like the mode mm. of life or the, the the style of living that we have now or even the same values that we have now and that values have changed. I think maybe the problem with Britishness or Englishness is that where are the values written down? Like on a, ba on a, on a kind of basic bureaucratic level, you know, it doesn't help that we don't have a constitution, for example. If you were to ask 
where are the values of the United States written down? And you had to point to a document. Obviously, yeah. you're going to point to the Constitution, aren't you? Yeah. In all its, you know, imperfect glory. <laughs> um, but that does give you some idea of, like, of the values that the place was at least founded on. Yeah. And that have shaped its um, direction over the years. But where are the where are British values? Or English values written down. I mean, people point to like Magna Carta and stuff. Yeah. But I mean, that was that's a highly contextual document that, that came about as a matter of necessity, not necessarily a matter of ideology. And that's the thing, like, because if we need something immovable and unchangeable to fall back on, then you know maybe an ideology, like an abstract set of ideas, is something that could serve that purpose because it's immune potentially to all other change, to physical change, to geographical change, to material change. You know, ideas don't erode, but then fine, okay, so let's say that's given, but then where do you locate those ideas when it comes to British values? Sure. We can see how tempting it is when everybody is trumpeting yeah, these same values and people are like, yeah, of course, like I want to protect you know, this heritage, I want to protect these values, you know, the things that I f find are the foundations of my society or my culture or my identity. But when they're not written down, when they become so easy to, to latch onto, but not so easy to, to point at, you know, it does, mm. you get a great number of people agreeing, but not knowing what they're agreeing to or about or, or anything else. And it becomes a kind of bland yes. I think there's a lot of sort of pride in pride going on. I mean, I could be wrong because I've never had a conversation with, say, a English nationalist. I may be pleasantly surprised if I ever get to talk to one of these people, but I just can't imagine what their answer would be if I said to them, so, okay, well, what are your values as an English nationalist? What are you proud of as an English nationalist? I don't know what they would say. Maybe it's very simple. National pride is an expression of pride in one's identity and that is just an outgrowth of self-esteem and self-respect, you know, so maybe a lot of, you know, nationalists feel, you know, I have to feel proud of my country for good or ill, otherwise I can have no self-respect. It's no. necessary, right? Yeah. Like that, it, that is, you know, my identity is English and I'm going to be proud of that, yeah. come what may. It's dangerous though, because that becomes quite solipsistic. I mean, I'm trying to think of other people now who we are like, I talked about Shakespeare earlier. I'm trying to think, you know, is there kind of a line through history of so-called great English thinkers, each in their own way, summing up something about what it means to be English. I mean, like Isaac Newton. We should be proud yeah, yeah, of yeah. that guy. Possibly one of the smartest people ever to have lived. And that's great. And yeah, it's nice that, you know, he was an English man through and through. But is there anything to say that Isaac Newton was the quintessential English genius? Is that also to say that you can't have a quintessential French genius yeah. or a quintessential, you know, Australian 
genius. It's like, what is it about the genius of Isaac Newton that is necessarily English in any way? You know, the scientific yeah. method transcends all of that. So I think that's us for this month. Thank you so much for listening. If you know anyone that might be interested in contributing to Still Listening, please tell them to get in touch with us. Or if it's you, get in touch with us. Feel free to email us at stilllisteningpodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or basically anything else that involves... Come and follow us home. Yeah, that too. All of it. We're open. We're very open. So until next time... Bye!